From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. A world-altering meeting takes place between Chinese President Xi Jinping and Russia's President Vladimir Putin, but corporate media misses the story. This is monumental. I'm running out of adjectives to describe it, but certainly uh, those who are wondering where this small planet is heading need to pay careful and close attention to this Moscow-Beijing summit. And a large coalition of the left rallies in front of the White House to oppose the U.S. proxy war against Russia in Ukraine and marks the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. The forces within the military-industrial complex and the leadership of both the Republican and the Democratic Party have, without debate, adopted as a consensus position that the U.S. should be prepared and prioritize major power conflict. These stories and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, Chinese President Xi Jinping and Russian President Vladimir Putin wrapped up a three-day historic meeting on Wednesday agreeing to cooperate on economic areas, including energy, food security, railways, and other types of infrastructure. Both countries said that they will increase the use of their own currencies, the yuan and ruble, quickening the pace of so-called de-dollarization or decreased use of U.S. dollars for transactions. We'll have more on the Xi-Putin meeting later in the show with historian Gerald Horn. Veteran investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch is accusing the Biden administration of feeding the press false stories about the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline system in order to, quote, protect a president who made an unwise decision and is now lying about it, end quote, Hirsch said. He made the accusation in a follow-up article to his explosive story accusing Biden of approving the plan last year to use explosives on the Russia to Germany pipeline system. Hirsch's reporting, which was based on anonymous sources, has been dismissed by Biden administration officials, even though Biden and his aides have repeatedly bragged about destruction of the pipeline. TikTok CEO Xiao Zichu testified Thursday before Congress, trying repeatedly to assure lawmakers that the popular social media app does not provide data of Americans to the Chinese government. But despite Chu stating repeatedly that the government has no access to the company's data and even offering to place the app's service for U.S. customers in the United States under the watch of a U.S.-based company, members of Congress repeatedly told him that they did not believe him, therefore raising the question of why they invited Chu to testify in the first place. Here is Chu speaking to Representative Anna Eshu of California, where she represents Silicon Valley. As I said in the opening statement, our plan is to move American data to be stored on American soil by the American company. I understand that, but but you're sidestepping, or I haven't read anything uh, in terms of uh, TikTok, how you can actually say, and you spoke in your opening statement about a firewall relative to the data. But the Chinese government has that data. How how can you promise that 
that uh, that that will move into uh, into the United States of America and be protected here. Uh, Congressman, I have seen no evidence that the Chinese government has access to that data. They have never asked us. We have not provided. Well, you know what? I've I asked find that, that. I find that actually preposterous. I have uh, looked in, I have seen no evidence of this happening. Mm. And in order to assure everybody here and all our users, our commitment is to move the data in, into the United States to be stored on American soil by an American company, overseen by American personnel. So the risk will be similar to any government going to an American company asking for data. Chu's testimony was one day after civil and digital rights groups rallied on Capitol Hill to oppose the bipartisan push to ban TikTok in the United States, saying that such efforts are rooted in anti-China bias or in a plan to take down TikTok because it competes with the U.S.-based company Meta. Social media and privacy experts said that the proposals in Congress targeting TikTok would not even address alleged privacy concerns, which also exist for U.S.-based social media platforms. According to Geoconomy Report, the U.S. government printed $300 billion in a week to save collapsing banks and to bail out Silicon Valley oligarchs and venture capital firms, paying all of their uninsured deposits. Editor Ben Norton noted that, quote, the Fed's bailout was a stark reversal of the quantitative tightening policies that the U.S. Central Bank had been pursuing for a year in an attempt to reduce the money supply and fight consumer price index inflation. The Fed's interest rate hikes have caused economic hardship for workers in the U.S. and around the world, but these humble people don't get bailouts, end quote, Norton wrote. Well, we know that humble people are also not being served by the U.S. healthcare system. A new report by Public Citizen details how private equity firms are buying up healthcare services, including physician practices, with the goal of turning a quick profit. The priority to maximize profits results in slashing staffs, price gouging patients, and surprising them with astronomical bills, and not prioritizing care that has a low margin of profit. Quote, unlike acquisitions of hospitals, which typically occur under a public spotlight, the private equity industry acquisition of physician practices and other healthcare business lines often occur with little or no disclosure or public scrutiny, hindering the ability of regulators and watchdogs to monitor the effects of private equity ownership, end quote, the report said. It suggested solutions including the Stop Wall Street Looting Act introduced by Senator Elizabeth Warren and also Senator Pramila Jayapal's Healthcare Ownership Transparency Act. And finally, in culture and media, librarians around the United States are being pressured at an alarming rate to remove books about people of color or with LGBTQ plus themes and stories. According to the American Library Association, A record-breaking 2,571 unique titles were challenged in 2022, a 38% increase from the previous year. The organization recorded 1,269 demands to censor books from various groups and individuals compared to 729 challenges counted in 2021. Quote, each attempt to ban a book 
by one of these groups represents a direct attack on every person's constitutionally protected right to freely choose what books to read and what ideas to explore. End quote, said Deborah Caldwell Stone, director of the ALA Office for Intellectual Freedom. She added, quote, the choice of what to read must be left to the reader or in the case of children to parents. That choice does not belong to self-appointed book police, end quote. And finally, a new watchdog project is targeting what they call neoliberal hacks passing as economic profits. The Revolving Door Project has launched a new website, HackWatch, to name and shame Wall Street-friendly experts pushing often harmful neoliberal financial theories as absolute truths, taking aim at conflicts of interest and flat-out falsehoods in economic reporting, and the so-called experts who perpetuate them. Max Moran, the personnel team director at Revolving Door Project, said in a statement introducing the new site, quote, anyone who claims they have the absolute answer to every economic question isn't being honest with you. They're being a hack and they shouldn't be considered serious sources, end quote. And those are headlines and happenings. After this break, voices from the March on Washington to fund people's needs, not the war machine. Stay with us. Trump and Biden, who've all gotten a pass 
after they killed people in Iraq, Afghanistan, Serbia, Libya, Somalia, Lem Yemen, and Haiti, where I know there's so many countries, right? But we want to end that. And the theft of money, $100 billion for Ukraine to wage this proxy war. And we don't want a war against China either. So you gotta watch some of these folks who claim to be against a war in Ukraine. They wanna go to China and get us in a, uh, another uh, fight against a nuclear-powered nation. But that's gonna be true as long as we have imperialism. There's going to be one long forever war as long as this is an imperialist country. That's why we have an $800 billion defense budget. But we don't have health care and housing as human rights. The two are antithetical. You cannot have human rights respected when you have a country that is one gigantic war machine. And I just want to say also, we have to think about the other wars, AFRICOM, SOUTHCOM, INDOPACCOM, as the U.S. tries to control the entire world. But we will liberate ourselves from war when we liberate ourselves from the oligarchy. Yeah. Thank you so much. Power to the people. Power to the people. And Stop Cop City. Stop Cop City. Thank you. Yeah. Give it up one more time for Margaret Kimberly. Oh, yeah. I hope y'all are reading Black and Gender Report. And shout out to the United National Anti-War yeah. Coalition as well for helping to build this demonstration and bring people from all across this country. And we really are from every single nook and cranny of the United States. People have come from so many different, from Maine. I mean, people have come from hours and hours, Atlanta, you know, the, the Miami, Los Angeles. So I thank you all, and I'm not gonna list them all. I know it's too many, I'm sorry I forgot you. North Carolina, I saw some folks here. Detroit, LA, all of them. Philadelphia, okay, I hear you sister sponsor, I know. Next, I want to bring up Brian Becker, the National Director of the Answer Coalition. Sisters and brothers, I want to talk a little bit about what's going to happen the rest of today. Because what we're doing today, I believe, will be remembered as something that's quite historic, something very profound a commitment, a determination on our part to build a new anti-war movement at a moment when the forces within the military-industrial complex and the leadership of both the Republican and the Democratic Party have, without debate, adopted as a consensus position that the U.S. should be prepared and prioritize major power conflict. This means that the war in Ukraine, which did not really begin simply with the Russian military intervention on February 24, 2022, but many years earlier than that, including the fascist-led coup d'etat of February 2014 to bring well. Ukraine into NATO. This is a proxy war but it's a dress rehearsal for a bigger war that the U.S. intends to wage to weaken Russia, to topple its government, 
to, in, to go to war and have confrontation with China, to topple the Communist Party of China, inside of China, and just think about the dimensions of the madness here. The United States could not defeat the Taliban in Afghanistan after 20 years, so let's go to war with the People's Republic of China and Russia. Think of the, think of the magnitude of that craziness, and yet there's no debate. Look at the mainstream media, the corporate media. They'll describe this demonstration as the far left or Russian apologists or something like that to demonize us like they demonized the Russians, like they demonized the Chinese, like they demonized the Syrians, like they always demonized the Palestinians, like they demonized the Iraqis and the Cubans and the Venezuelans and anyone who wants to be free and independent from the empire. Yeah. So we're at a crossroads, and today I hope all of you will march together with us. We're going to bring coffins. We're going to do this in a few minutes, so be prepared for this march. This is what's going to happen the rest of the day. We're going to take these flag-draped coffins, Syria, Afghanistan, Yemen, Palestine, Russia, Ukraine, Yemen, Syria, and people from the United States as well, who are the needlessly killed, murdered people by the empire during the past 20 years. And we're going to first go to the White House, and we're going to say to the White House, you are guilty. You are guilty. You are responsible for these deaths. It's not the Syrians, the Palestinians, the Russians, the Chinese. It's the government that speaks in our name. And then we're going to go a few blocks away to the Washington Post, the neocon media that promotes lies, that spoon feeds war propaganda, and say to the Washington Post, we know who you are. You're not journalists. You're an echo chamber for the war machine, and you too are guilty for the deaths of all of these people. Yeah. That's a short march. It's a short march, but then we're ending with an indoor event at the beautiful and historic New York Avenue Presbyterian Church a place where the forces for abolition against slavery gathered in 1860 and 1861 and during the Civil War. And we're going to hear additional speakers, including Noam Chomsky, who is a renowned speaker and linguist who has led so much in exposing manufactured consent. So sisters and brothers, we're going to have a couple more wrap-up speakers here. We're going to carry these coffins to the White House. We'll have a short ceremony there. We're going to march to the Washington Post and then to New York Avenue Presbyterian Church. We need all of you to stay with us for these next 90 minutes to show we mean it. We're determined. We're going to build a new movement. 
this movement is not ending today. This movement is beginning today. It's the most important movement that could possibly be built. Down with the war makers. Down with the war machine. Fund people's needs, not the war machine. And let's stand together to say no to colonialism, no to racism, no to the oppression of women, no to the oppression of the LGBTQ community. Say yes to the disabled movement and all of those sectors who are under attack by the same wretched capitalist system. Thank you, brothers and sisters. I'm here in front of the White House. I'm speaking to Dr. Jill Stein, former presidential candidate for the Green Party. I wanted to ask you a few questions for Pacifica Radio. So, yeah, well, thank you so much. Yeah, and thanks so, for being here. Yeah, so um, we're out here in front of the White House, and you know, there was a. When you were speaking, and there were. Uh, maybe Medea. I was actually right next to kind of a heckler from uh, from holding up the Ukrainian flag and uh, basically saying, you know, tell it to Russia, tell Russia to get out, whatever. And so, tell me about your experiences trying to explain the complexity of this. For so, for so many people, they just see Russia as the aggressor. Yeah, it's so important to fight back against the propaganda that says good guy here, bad guy here. Wars are brutal and largely illegal, and they're murderous, period. On the other hand, the U.S. has been ginning up this war with Russia since at least 2014, arguably since 2004 when we led a color revolution in Ukraine to set this up, and arguably from 1992 when the Pentagon first announced its policy of full-spectrum dominance. So yes, Russia's invasion is horrific, brutal, criminal, but Russia had a gun to its head and really had no option, which is the larger reality here. Let's not block out the context, which is that the U.S. effort to basically regime change Russia is one in a long line of scores of such murderous regime change operations. And the U.S. is trying to hide behind the criminality of a war that it basically forced. So it's really important, I think, to educate people. And I've been finding people are really quite shocked and flabbergasted to hear the actual history, the real story that has to be told here. This is a human story. This is not one government or another. This is about how empire really is impoverishing us all and is putting us all in the target hairs of a nuclear conflagration that we get closer to by the hour. Yeah, it's it's really scary. And, you know, you mentioned full-spectrum dominance. And so tell people about that, because they may may know that term, but they don't know what that is. So this is official U.S. military policy. It was first, as far as I know, the first real documented announcement about this that I've been able to find was in the New York Times, which was covering excerpts 
of the Pentagon's policy issued in 1992, where it said essentially that we will not allow competitors, economic or military competitors, to our dominance. And we won't even allow competitors who are rising to regional power. Exactly, even in their own neighborhood. In like, their own neighborhood. Yeah. And not among our friends, not among our allies, and not among our, our uh, adversaries. None of it will be allowed. We shall exert absolute dominance. And, you know, this is just not... What should we say? This is not how mature people, this is not how adults treat each other. You know, what I've been learning in, in sort of my, my study of what is diplomacy anyhow, you know, which is not really my background and not my field. I'm a, you know, I'm a medical geek from way back. So I'm, I'm kind of learning as I go here. But what I have learned about diplomacy is that it's basically like we're supposed to listen to each other. You know, it's like what families have to learn if you're going to try to stay together. It's what it's what any couple has to learn if you think you're going to stay together. We have to be mature human beings here. We have to listen to each other. And, right. you know, so how do you enter into the complex world of international relations and say, I'm boss? You know, it's like hearing Ned right. Price. Right. Ned right. Price the other day, the spokesperson for the State Department, saying that no one has done as much to create a basically peace and stability and an integrated Middle East as the U.S. It's like, whoa, where do you come up saying that? And like that is, to my mind, that is a microcosm of the cluelessness and what should we say, the social dysfunction Mm -hmm. of people who are in positions of power here, who are calling the shots. They cannot be allowed to do that. And we have to fight them in the streets. We need to throw the bums out in the boning booth. We need to exercise every means of rebellion uh, at our disposal. Okay. Our lives depend on it. Let me just add, end with that because I think that's what's more persuasive to people than anything. They think this is somebody else's war, but it is it is impoverishing us all and it is endangering us. If you think you are not in the nuclear target hairs, think again. You are. It is in your front yard, not your backyard. Absolutely. All right. You just heard some of the people who spoke at the stage or one of the interviews I did at the March on Washington to fund people's needs and not the war machine held March 18th, 2023 in front of the White House. The protest was followed by a march to the offices of the Washington Post, where another brief protest was held against what speakers described as false and biased coverage that is fomenting war and hurting the majority of the world's working and poor people. The final event of the action was a teach-in at the historic New York Avenue Presbyterian Church in Northwest D.C. People from countries including China, Eritrea, Ethiopia, and Syria spoke out about the devastation and dangers for the world resulting from U.S. aggression. I will post uh, two more hours of my special coverage of that day's events on our Patreon page. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash on the ground show. Uh, this is on the ground. I'm Esther Averam. Stay with us. Them all 
all the fire They using chemicals And food is no more natural We used to have children And have them naturally It's not a compulsory again Now it's Matrix babies Them mad Them going mad Them going mad Mad, mad, mad See the system going mad Them going mad This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And to bring us up to date on the rapidly changing developments on the world stage, I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, the writer and activist, Gerald Horn. He's the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. The pleasure is all ours whenever we get a chance to talk to you. Well, I wanted to start with what seems to be the biggest news on the world stage, and that is the visit by President Xi of China to Moscow to meet with Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia. And I've been struck by how differently the meeting is characterized and the outcomes of the meeting are categorized in corporate media in the West uh, compared to, I guess, more left or progressive outlets. So what is your biggest takeaway from the meeting uh, between these two world leaders? It's potentially a game changer. It's potentially a blockbuster. Potentially, it not only inaugurates a new multipolar world, a move away decisively from the so-called unipolar world that befell us post-1989 with the collapse of the Berlin Wall, post-1991 
with the collapse of the Soviet Union. But not only multipolarity, but the fact that China most likely is in the passing lane. And just as the collapse of the Soviet Union was prefigured about 50 years ago, when President Nixon and Henry Kissinger traveled to China to inaugurate an anti-Soviet era that led directly a few decades later to the collapse of the Soviet Union, now we have President Xi Jinping flying to Moscow, and not only flying to Moscow, but it's not an exaggeration to suggest that their economies are becoming interlinked. That also suggests that they will be moving more forthrightly away from the U.S. dollar in bilateral trade, which given the fact that China is the leading trading partner for oh so many countries all around the world, that it possibly will lead to the substitute of the Chinese renminbi for the dollar, or at least a basket of currencies, including the renminbi, which is a withering blow to U.S. imperial hegemony, uh, which is now being whipsawed as we speak by a banking crisis that has yet to dissipate. So this is monumental. I'm running out of adjectives to describe it, but Certainly, uh, those who are wondering where this small planet is heading need to pay careful and close attention to this Moscow-Beijing summit. Based on reports, there were several agreements signed around trade between the two countries, establishing new uh, ventures that would also further link their security arrangements or their their collaborations on security. And this was according to some reports, taken as, you know, threatening by the United States. What do you make of these types of uh, reactions from, like, the, the, the United States? Well, I expect it no less. Keep in mind that there is a complementary nature between the Russian and Chinese economies. That is to say that Russia is a major producer of natural gas and of oil, of agricultural commodities. Keep in mind as well that the manufacturing capability of the People's Republic of China by some measures surpasses that of the European Union and the United States combined. Keep in mind as well that with the so-called Belt and Road Initiative that China has embarked on, which involves the massive building of infrastructure all around the world, not least in Africa, which we've talked about previously on this program, but also through Central Asia. That is to say, the former Soviet republics, such as Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, etc. This is a region where not only China is investing heavily, but which Russia wields significant influence from the days of the old Soviet Union. There is another group of initials that we've talked about that listeners should pay attention to, and I'm speaking of the SCO, or Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which fairly could be considered a counterpoint to the U.S.-dominated NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, now fighting a proxy war in Ukraine. 
but uh, that's probably an overstatement because it's not a military alliance to that degree, but certainly it is a countervailing force uh, with regard to the pretensions of NATO. It has co-opted into its ranks, not only as suggested, China and Russia, uh, but also Iran, uh, India, etc. India is increasingly important because perhaps the last gasp of North Atlantic imperialism will be to try to wield India against China, given the pre-existing contradictions and tensions between the two most populous nations on planet Earth. And then there is the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Another profound trip is taking place within the next day or two. I'm speaking of the fact that President Lula of Brazil will be spending five days in China. Uh, That is highly significant. Recall that Lula turned thumbs down with regard to uh, sending uh, military materiel uh, to the Ukraine uh, battlefield. Right. And we also know that there are invitations, if not applications, for other nations to join BRICS, which is arising as a counterpoint to the group of seven led by the United States, the Western European nations, Canada, Japan, etc. I'm speaking, of course, of Turkey, potentially Indonesia, potentially Saudi Arabia, uh, etc., And this leads me to another point that listeners should pay close attention to, and that is the BRICS summit that will be taking place in South Africa in a few months. Uh, This comes in the wake of other important meetings in Moscow between the Russian leadership and African leaders, but already uh, on Voice of America, uh, whose South African correspondent, Darren Taylor, happens to be a journalist who also writes for the Epic Times, which is hysterically uh, anti-communist and anti-China, uh, they have been pressuring the Pretoria administration in league with the right wing in South Africa, which, as you know, is disproportionately comprised of those of European descent, to arrest President Putin uh, once he lands uh, for this summit. Now, uh, this is not going to happen. But it reflects the hysteria that is besetting the North Atlantic countries, hysteria that's leading some to warn against the possibility that in order to save their dissipating hegemony, they may engage in a riverboat gamble, uh, may seek to embark on the perilous path of World War III, which would be no more than a suicide pact. Uh, which would obviously jeopardize all of humanity. And in that regard, uh, pay attention as well to the fact that London supposedly is sending depleted uranium shells to the Ukrainian battlefield, the equivalent of a dirty bomb. Uh, This is a very perilous escalatory maneuver. Uh, I'm sure it will be met in kind by Moscow. So we're on a very dangerous and slippery slope, and it's well past time for masses in Washington to take to the streets in opposition. Well, I'm sure you know there were many of us uh, taking to the streets on March 18th here. And, you know, what organizers hope would be a revival of the anti-war movement. I spoke to some people who noted that under a Democratic leadership, when a Democrat is in the White House, Americans or the left is slow to get to the streets to protest war. 
in this case uh, under the Biden administration. But there's certainly a spark uh, given on that day to revive the anti-war movement. But in addition to African leaders also going to Moscow uh, in the week beginning, like March 20th, the African leaders, 40 delegations, delegations from 40 countries in Moscow. And there's going to be also this Africa-Russia summit that you mentioned in June. And so these types of visits and the visit by Xi totally fly in the face of this repeated mantra in Western corporate media that Russia is isolated, you know, and what they mean is isolated from from the U.S. and their uh, allies in Europe, perhaps. And that's it. And when I also look at the fact that they wanted the recent or so-called indictment from the International Criminal Court to further isolate Putin, one U.S. official may have made the comment, well, anyone who now meets with Putin is, you know, basically consorting with a criminal or dirtying your hands or something like that. And despite these types of statements, you know, people are still going to meet with him to, you know, establish relationships and build relationships with Russia. Well, the International Criminal Court uh, is a joke in many ways. What I mean is, you know more than most that they spend an inordinate amount of time prosecuting leaders and figures from Africa, uh, then taking time out occasionally to prosecute leaders from formerly socialist uh, Yugoslavia. And with regard to the heart of the case concerning Mr. Putin, as reported, the idea is that he has been breaking up families, it is said, by sending children into Russia. Now, first of all, the territory that the ICC says is Ukrainian territory, uh, Moscow claims is Russian territory. Secondly, uh, one wonders why the ICC, if not the corporate media, haven't looked into where the parents are with regard to these children, perhaps, and logically so, uh, their parents have perished on Russian soil and the state has decided that they should grow up with another Russian family. Now, uh, that is a plausible explanation for all of this propaganda uh, concerning arresting and detaining the president of Russia, uh, which could open the gates of hell if somehow that is attempted not to mention executed. I should also mention with regard to your point concerning the Democrats. Before you go to that, just hold your thought. I don't want you to, <laughs> to lose it. But, you know, it also goes back to something that we've talked about so many times about the fact that, you know, there were fourteen to 18,000 people killed in the Donbass by Kiev and by this this civil war that is never mentioned in the eight years between 2014 and 2022, when Kiev was attacking the Donbass, which is primarily Russian speaking, whether you would call it you know ethnic Russian or not. And these children are, you know, coming from Russian families. And, and also, you know, perhaps because the United States turns away families and breaks up families and, and kidnaps children and, you know, separating them from their parents. They think that this is what's happening in Ukraine or in these Russian territories now, but but that's not that's not the case. Well, well said. And back to the Democrats, uh, one of the problems that the Democrats face is that uh, Mr. Biden has taken on 
a humongous task, that is to say, confronting Russia and China simultaneously, uh, going against the advice of Henry Kissinger, uh, who was the architect of this splitting maneuver, that is to say, splitting Moscow from Beijing, which in my estimation and the estimation of others was the key to the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. And what concerns me uh, above all is that as African leaders, South American leaders like Lula refused to tag along after Mr. Biden in Washington, you have a goodly number of black leaders and organizations who are now facing the rise of this white nationalism, uh, this violent white supremacy, without the kind of international support that has helped to bail us out in analogous situations. Not only that, but as one who tries to follow the anti-war movement in Europe in particular, uh, I'm quite concerned by the fact that many otherwise intelligent analysts of the Ukraine crisis uh, seem to think that the planet has a better chance of surviving if Donald Trump comes into office because he, in their estimation, would extend an olive branch to Moscow. Now, of course, let's not get into uh, the warmongering he would try to execute against the People's Republic of China. But in any case, what this complicated political, geopolitical situation calls for is sober analysis, but that is precisely what is conspicuously missing from a good deal of the Black leadership and Black organizations, which puts all of us in danger. Well, we don't have um, too much more time, but, but I want to definitely pivot to this report uh, released by the United Nations Human Rights Office of the High Commissioner. And an email drew my attention to it from a Nicaraguan uh, solidarity organization and really just calling, just condemning the report. And I just saw it as another example coming on the heels of this spurious indictment of of Putin, another indictment of these international organizations that are so f compromised at this point where, you know, it takes away all your faith in these organizations that we have to rely on for international law. So this, this uh, report from the UN, from the United Nations Human Rights Council is condemning the Nicaraguan government and people for committing human rights abuses against the opposition, political opposition, and not really taking into account the, and, and this was a, a, a during a turbulent period when Nicaragua was, was being targeted in a very intense way by the United States for regime change. Uh, I don't know if you remember the very violent uh, protesters that attacked people, businesses, organizations, the government, I think around 2018, and so this report is basically blaming the government for all the violence that ensued during that time when they were able to beat back the, you know, the kind of regime change operation underway and saying nothing about the, the well-funded opposition funded by the United States and other U.S. allies in terms of trying to overturn and, you know, um, overthrow the Sandinista government. So anyway, I don't know if, if you had a chance to look at that, but to me, it's kind of one in in the same as the what the ICC did in terms of this uh, indictment, so-called indictment against Putin. 
Well, bringing up the United Nations forces us to consider that it's unfortunate that we do not have an impeachment procedure which could be implemented against the Secretary General, the former Portuguese leader, Mr. Guterres, because under his administration, the United Nations and many of its major bodies have basically become lapdogs for North Atlantic imperialism. Now, I know, of course, as noted, he comes from Portugal, but he's an international civil servant. Uh, He's supposed to be the equivalent of an umpire, but he's turned into a player. And that is unfortunate because he's discrediting the United Nations, or organization that certainly needs reform. One of the points that I pay careful and close attention to with all of these meetings between African leaders and their Russian counterparts is that the African leaders are pressing heavily for representation on the United Nations Security Council, which has no African nations represented at the top table. Of course, there are these discredited, moth-eaten post-colonial regimes in London and Paris, in addition to Russia and China. And I should also mention that this is long overdue, uh, that certainly we need African representation, not only because it's small d democracy, but also it might serve as a counterweight to these increasingly right-wing maneuvers of the U.S. administration and their lapdog speaking of Secretary Guterres. Well, I'll definitely keep following what happens to that report. The uh, Nicaraguan government, uh, the civil society is asking for it to be withdrawn. That is, maybe I will have a chance to link to it, to the report and to their response and their petition where they're seeking support to have this report withdrawn. But I want to thank I want to thank Gerald Horn for joining me. He's the Morris Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. His most recent book is The Counter Revolution of 1836: Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you, and of course, I look forward to coming to Washington in some weeks to launch my latest book. Yes, Halting Capital. Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000. Uh, WPFW, of course, will be hosting this launch. Be there or be square. That's right. That's right. So you made the announcement, not me. I should have made the announcement, but, you know, okay, I'll defer. All right. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. And Gerald Horn will have the last word on today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. We're on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and on all your podcast platforms at On the Ground with Esther Averam. Our website and archive of all of our shows is onthegroundshow.org. In addition, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and I also link to every show on my Instagram page at Esther underscore Averam. Special thank you to our supporters on Patreon.com at On The Ground Show. The music we played this hour included Dem Mad from the album Wanna Be Free. This is the Proverbs reggae band, awesome DMV bass band, and featuring Ross Zia Ayubu, known to many of us as DJ Z Lion on WPFW FM in Washington, D.C. And also our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. 
on the ground is a totally listener sponsored supported show and we are in urgent need of your support if you rely on the show if you listen to the show you come to look forward to what we are able to offer every week please support us on patreon at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show and you can also give on our website through paypal or other means if you want to send a check all that information is there but please please support us i want to thank our supporters on patreon so much and for those who are already supporting if you can tell a friend who you know would love to sign up we need the support patreon.com forward slash on the ground show or go to on the ground show.org thank you <laughs>